Hello and welcome to Talking Scared. I'm your host, Neil McRobert, and this week I invite you to join me in my suffering. I'm recording this intro the day after my big surprise 40th birthday party. I am hungover unto death. It's apocalyptic, frankly, I can, I can barely think. Thankfully, I record the actual interviews well in advance, and that is particularly fortunate this time, because this week's episode deals with some thorny issues, requiring a clear mind to navigate. I'm joined by Neddy Okorafor, Leslie Necker Arima, and Maurice Brodus, three of the contributors to Out There Screaming, the brand new anthology of black horror fiction curated by none other than Jordan Peele. Neddy, Leslie and Maurice are major voices in black speculative fiction, of all kinds, and we do talk about that genre crossover quite a bit, but it's wonderful to see what they do when they turn their imaginations to full-bore horror. We talk about their stories, about the anthology as a whole, and the broader topic of black horror. What does that even mean? And at times, the guests even turn the interview around on me, getting me thinking about my own presumptions and the baggage that I may bring to these stories. I think it makes for a fascinating conversation, and I hope you do too. And heads up, I neglect to introduce the guests properly and let you know which voice belongs to who. It becomes clear, but for ease, Leslie speaks first. If you want to support the show and get loads of bonus stuff for your ears, join the Talking Scared Patreon. Just go to patreon.com slash talkingscaredpod. Consider it a birthday present for me and you. But now, come with me to a modern America, mired in a history of violence, but always looking to the horizon for new fears to embrace. Let's talk scared. Well, hi, Neddy, Leslie, Maurice. Welcome to Talking Scared. How are you all? I'm doing great. Good, good. Well, I'm, I'm delighted to have you here, especially today, because today is the day that Out There Screaming hits bookshelves. It seems to have been a very big, exciting, glossy run-up to this release, so it, it must be quite nice to see the book finally out there for people to read. Uh, yeah, I think it's been um, over a year since uh, we were contacted, so it's been uh, nice to sort of see the build-up and just sort of nice to have the book out in the world now. Yeah, I've read the anthology now. It, it's packed with great stories, but I, I do feel like your three stories give a kind of perfect cross-section of what the anthology has to offer. Um, now, normally I ask an individual guest to give a brief summary of their story, but rather than inundate listeners with <laughs> three synopses right <laughs> off the bat, I thought we could start with some broader questions about the anthology and the wider landscape of, of Black Horror and then perhaps dig a little deeper into each of your respective ideas. Does that, does that sound okay as a, as a rough structure? Oh, yeah, yes. sounds good, sounds good. Yeah, that works. Cool. Right, okay then. Well, let's start with the background to Out There Screaming. One, because I don't know much about it. It's been quite difficult to find information about the kind of the birth of this anthology. But also, I imagine it's a kind of incredible challenge to put together one anthology to represent the contemporary multiplicity of, of black horror. That seems quite the big ask. So I suppose my first question was, what was your brief? What, what, what was the extension to you guys when, you, when they came to you to say, can you write a story? Were, were you given parameters? Um, 
first of all, I want to confirm, I'm sure it was a challenge. I was very happy that I didn't have to put together the yeah. anthology. Um, you know, so, you know, John Joseph Adams uh, approached asking if I would like to work on a project. And he said, I can't tell you what it is <laughs> until you sign this NDA. <laughs> if I had not worked with John before, I would have said, this sounds like a scam. I'm not going to sign anything. <laughs> and so, but because I, because I'd worked with John a couple of times before, I was like, okay, sure. I'll, I'll, and then after I signed, he was able to sort of disclose um, what it was. And I don't know about the other people on the, um, the other guests, but I was not giving any parameters except just like, a work of horror. The like, you know, bare description of the anthology saying that this was going to be an anthology of Black horror. Just like take that and run, run with it and sort of write whatever it is that you want. Okay. That's quite the broad remit then. Yes, it is. <laughs> what about you, Neddy? Were you given any further guidance than that or was it just come at me? It was about the same. It was about the same. I had worked with um, John Joseph Adams on other things over the years. So, so I knew him well, but yeah, the NDA thing was interesting. It actually made me more curious. I'm like, when, whenever there are secrets, I know that, you know, I get more curious about it. So like there are secrets and that's like, okay, I need to see, I need to know what this is. Um, and yeah, there were no, there were no parameters, which I like other than, you know, black horror and that's it. And I like that. I like that very much because it allowed for whatever was going to come to come. And, and, and I'm sure like, uh, I haven't read all of the stories in the anthology. I've read several of them and they're just like a bit of there. You can, you can tell that there were no parameters and I love that. <laughs> You know, it's it's just a bit of, of everything and it's it's very diverse in that way. It's a real plethora. I mean, it starts with N.K. Jemison's story, um, which is nothing like the fiction I've read of hers before. Um, it's called Reckless Eyeballing. And I, I won't spoil it for readers, for listeners who've not read it yet, but that, that story starts on a kind of 11 on the batshit crazy meter. <laughs> right. and, then, and then the collection goes goes from there. And I am I'm pleased that you you both mentioned John Joseph Adams because obviously the big name on the front of this collection is, is Jordan Peele. Uh, and there is a whole there is an artistic reason for that. There's a whole, you know, economical reason for that as well. We you know let's let's not be naive here. Um, but yeah John Joseph Adams is, has done a, a, a amazing job of editing these as well. So I'm glad that we he got a shot because his name's only on the inside cover, which I mm-hmm. I thought it was good to mention him. Uh, but, you know, Jordan Peele, did you meet with him at any point? Was he involved to any great degree? You've all gone very quiet. <laughs> You've all gone very quiet. Uh, so I, I don't know how involved he was. I mean, I'm sure he, he was obviously... I mean, he was reading the story. He, yeah, he, and this was sort of his you know, conception of this anthology. And so, yeah. um, but uh, our sort of, day-to-day, like, sort, of, you know, the sort of day-to-day contact was John. And so I mean, I'm sure, you know, the church journey didn't want to have all of us emailing him, right? Oh, how do you think, what do you think about this? You know, so John was our, John was sort of the point person, the contact person for us. Yeah. Okay. I've been trying to get in touch with Jordan Peele myself, and he seems to have a kind of series of castle walls around him of people who just deal with his emails. And I get it. I get why. As he you know? should. Right. Yeah, he yeah. Should. I, exactly. As he should. It's full of people like me kind of tugging at his coattails, asking for a conversation. Um, but I mean, I, I don't want to move on without speaking about Jordan Peele because, you know, for so many people, and by that, obviously, I mean white people, <laughs> Jordan Peele really has thrust black horror into the mainstream. And that, I mean, that's almost a redundant statement at this point because it's so obvious. But in terms of, you know, this collection and your participation in it, has his filmmaking 
played any role and influence in your storytelling at all? I loved Nope. Nope was just like, I can't even stop talking about it because it's like, it was, it was the kind of film that did everything that I love about. I I don't even know if I'd call it horror. It's just, it's, it's, Mm. it's Jordan Peele. And it, it, it was doing all the things that I love. So I, I don't know if I would say like, um, influence is a two like it's a back and forth mm-hmm. it's like a so so i don't know if i would i would use that word but it's definitely gotten under my skin it's definitely gotten in my creative dna i've watched that movie so many times i love it visually i love it thematically i love the characters i love like what he was doing with with all of those like the the choreography of all of it i, I just love it so much yeah. so i'm pretty sure that the there's there's either going to be influence or I don't know the word influence just doesn't work for me but like okay. yeah he, he's 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 in there he's in there definitely definitely in conversation with I think maybe um, a more appropriate term than um, necessarily influencing um, I will sort of echo Nettie in saying that um, Nope was just phenomenal yes. storytelling. Right. Um, and, you know, and, and, you know, sort of less like, uh, you know, I feel like um, us had very much of a jump scare quality to it. And Nope was just more insidious. And so it was it was just really fantastic. And I've seen Get Out, uh, Us and Nope. And, you know, like just the spectrum. I mean, like just even just within those three movies, the spectrum of what's covered is very wide. Uh, for, for me, it was more about, you know, his impact on the genre itself more than on, on me as a storyteller. And so, I mean, I look back over, you know, I've been at this for over 20 years, right, right in, the, in the horror field. And in fact, I remember when the early uh, Black Horror uh, anthology series called uh, Dark Dreams by Brandon, uh, Brandon Massey, um, and, and just us at that time trying to carve out a space for ourselves in the publishing industry and, and uh, you know, as, as horror writers and, and wanting to be able to tell our stories on, on our terms. Uh, <sighs> <laughs> right? Um, and then... But then Get Out comes uh, comes along, and all of a sudden we feel the rever- reverberations throughout the entire industry. And so now it's sort of like open the floodgates for us as storytellers and, and opportunities for us. And so that's I can feel that more than anything else. But again, you know, talking to writers who've been here for a minute, and, and so uh, and so I look at it the same way. Like Stephen King casts a, sh- a shadow over over horror in some ways, but now, you know, it's like, I, I almost feel like we're moving out of that shadow into the, the new shadow of uh, Jordan Peele in a lot of ways. Yeah. And I realized when I use the word influence that all three of your writings kind of predate Jordan Peele entered into this conversation. Right. So yeah, it's, it's obviously not a, a one way street here at all. Um, it's just that he, his, his voice seems so intrinsic intrinsic to what horror is doing now that it feels like it's shifting the dial for everyone you know um funny about nope though i i need to see it again because it, it's a film that made me realize that i'm quite dumb when it comes to movies because <laughs> right? I, I can read a book and kind of i'm trained to read critically and think about theme and this and the other but i watch movies like just the average sort of slap your yokel passive yeah and it just, I was like, what's this track? And, and I loved it, but I, I don't really know why I loved it. So I need to see it again, obviously. <laughs> but more serious question. I remember hearing um, Jordan speak about the movie Us. And he said this thing that has really resonated with me as, as an interviewer. He said that a film with black characters 
doesn't necessarily have to focus on a uniquely black experience. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And yeah. that is something I've come up with again and again on this podcast. Invariably, every time I have a writer of color on the show, we end up talking about race as the primary engine of their story. And it always feels, if I'm honest, a little problematic on, on my behalf, as if, as if black storytelling can only or is only framed in its difference from white culture and white experience. Mm-hmm. And this seems a good time to address this, right? Because of the, the existence of this anthology and having the chance to speak to you. Does that problem I've just said resonate with you as, as interviewees? And, and is there a better way to talk about black stories and, and black horror? So, you know, that's, I think it's really interesting. And, you know, if I think about sort of the difference between, say, Get Out and Us, right? So Get Out is very much like a raced horror story. Like it, like the blackness of the protagonist was part of the, like it was sort of part of the driving engine of the horror in the piece. Whereas Us could have been cast with just about anyone and still have been most of the notes that it did. Um, I think some of, the, some of the humor in some places might have been a little lost, but I think for the most part. Um, and so, you know, I don't know that I would say, I mean, like, it resonates with me in the sense that I do feel as though at times when um, the public engages with Black storytelling, there is all, there's tends to be a focus on sort of the, the Blackness as content, mm-hmm. Right, um, as you know, this idea of this is some, some sort of like learning experience. Uh, one of my friends puts it like, "Oh, when people sort of try to sell black storytelling to um, a non-black audience, it's almost in the sense of like, oh, eat your vegetables, or like it's good for you to read this to expand you." And so, like you said, there's something about that quality that I don't particularly care for. But also, I'm black, and so being black is just a ubiquitous part of just like my experience in the world. And so, I don't know that I would go as far as calling it problematic. But I think that um, uh, I think that some t- some readers like there's a layer that that they don't go beyond when engaging with works from you know, non-white writers or you know, particularly black writers um, but you know that's like that's not something that I worry or care about when I'm writing I just do my own thing right okay yeah yeah I think it's um I think it's complicated I think that like uh when we're talking about stories that are about the black experience what does that mean you know like you you could have a story that's about racism, but you could also have a story that's just a black character living their lives and, you know, living your life, those things come up. So I, I don't know. I don't know if um, this, this uh, reading things as this is a black story versus this is just a story. I think some of that comes from the consu- the reader or the audience mm-hmm. and there's nothing the, the black writer can do to like um to influence like it's that's not their job you know so because i think about nope and um that's a very black film but it's not it's 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 not on the nose about blackness but there are black characters who are dealing with things that black people have to deal with and that's part of the story. That's what I love about Nope. It's doing all of those things 
where it's not like um it's not a story that's hitting you over the head with this is about issues but those issues are there and they are important so i like that and so i i just i i, I think that there something needs to be said about what an audience brings to the story and 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 how that where that judgment comes from because i think it's more it's more complex than just saying this is a black this is a black story and this is just a story. I think it's far more complicated than that. Right, right. Because uh, you know, again, we go back to the Stephen King example. We're not ta- yeah. declaring him white horror by any stretch, and we're not going to break down you know horror by by race and culture that way. But uh, but and it is complicated because we say black horror. I'm like, what does that even mean? You know, w- w- just from the face of it. Because again, black is not a monolith. Right. Um, I'm, I, th- I even think about my own family, like I'm black, but I was born in London and then and then moved to the States early on. My mother was born in Jamaica and so brings her sense of history and culture to, to the family. And then my, my dad, well, he just runs the streets, uh, you know, here, here in America. And so so that's three different iterations of blackness just in one household. So when I come start telling these stories, I am telling black stories. I'm writing from the, a black cultural lens with a black cultural aesthetic. But at the very end, I'm, if, I'm, if I'm doing my job as a writer, I'm, what I'm writing, I'm, I'm writing human stories and I'm getting to the, the core of humanity. And, and in fact, the more specifically I'm writing stories from my lens, the more it actually resonates across uh, cross cultures. Yeah, I completely agree with that. The onus is on the, the reader or the interviewer like me, uh, because it, that is exactly the point I'm getting at. Well, so, you know, I'm going to sort of turn the question back on you, Neil, because you, <laughs> you said that this is something that you do. And so I would ask, why is it something that you do? You know, so like I can't I can't um, di- you know, direct um, where your interviews um, go. You know, you I can't I can't control the questions that you ask, but you can. And so um, and so if if it's something that you, you know, if it's something you find problematic, then like, you know, then, you know, like that would require some, you know, I don't know, soul searching or whatever um, on your part to ask, like, OK, so why why is it that I do this? And if it's something that feels like a problem to me, then like, what do I do to stop? Can I can I make one point that I'm, I'm thinking about as we're talking? Um, when we were talking about the parameters that were set, you know, for like, what are, what are the stories, you know, so they should be black horror. And I'm, I'm sure you guys w- would agree with this. You didn't think that, oh, okay, now I've got to write this story with black characters and black horror. It, it didn't, like, when I wrote my story, I didn't even think about the, pre- like, it was, it's just because that's what I, you know, it, it, I'm, I'm writing my story. So I didn't have to even think about the parameters, but it, what I wrote was I get black horror, <laughs> right? You know, and, you know that, I, that yeah. reminds me because when we talked about you know what was the impact of Jordan Peele, I sat here and thinking because uh, you know I started my career off as a horror writer, um, then I went into fantasy, and I've been doing a lot of science fiction stuff lately. Uh, but it was with Get Out when it came out, I was just like, oh, you know what, I miss writing horror. Mm. And so then mm. I started writing horror yeah. again. So when yeah. I got the invitation, yeah. when John reached out with the, with the invitation, yeah. I was literally already in the middle of writing the story mm-hmm. that's in there. Right. And I was just like, oh, yeah. wow, this works out nicely. Let me you know, go, <laughs> go ahead and keep writing. Yeah. Yeah. And also, you know, if I recall correctly, it's been some time, but I, if I recall correctly, when when they did reach out, you know, asking, you know, we, we like participate in this, you know, anthology of black horror, um, I, I, I think there was a like, you know, there was a note in there that you know that John said that oh it does not have to be 
just because it's, you know, this is an anthology of Black horror doesn't mean that you have to feel like you have to focus on racial issues. Like that was hmm. part of the conversation on the outset. And hmm. so um, and so I think it's just, this is just like, you know, this is a, a, like a, an anthology of Black horror writers, right? And, um, and I think that, you know, just by virtue of being Black horror writers, this is an anthology of right. Black horror. Yeah. 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 Works for me completely. That 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 that, that solves the, uh, the, the the thorny issue that I, for some reason, decide to bring up and cause issues for myself. <laughs> <laughs> That's fine. Let's get into one of the one of the stories. Um, so, where to start first? Well, your your top left in my screen, Maurice. So let's start yep. with you. Um, so your story is called the Norwood Trouble, mm-hmm. and it's 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 one of a, a select few stories in this, along with. Tanana Reeve Do's story that deals with a kind of historical horror. Um, can you, I suppose, best place to start, can you give us a, a kind of brief synopsis of, of what your story is about? Yeah, um, actually, be, uh, yeah, let me, I'll even start with the, the origins of, of the story because I, I was already in the middle of writing it when I, I got the invitation. And it's because um, a, a friend of mine here, I, I live in Indianapolis. And, uh, and I love writing about Indianapolis. And, and one of the reasons why is because I, I always consider Indianapolis like America and microcosm, right? And so if I'm writing about uh, the history of Indianapolis, believe me, I'm touching on, uh, you know, a lot of what's going on in America. And in, in this case, a friend of mine had recently been doing some scholarship around this area of Indianapolis called Norwood, which is a free Black community that was founded at the end of the Civil War and has literally existed in Indianapolis uh, as a self-sufficient community for nearly a century. And um, and so I was just fascinated. I ran across an article that talked about these two pastors in Norwood who were pastors by day, but at midnight would perform Orisha spells of protection over Norwood. And I'm just like, where's my pen? <laughs> because if that isn't right. a story, I know it, it literally just wrote itself at that point. Right, I'm just like, right. okay, and and she just and, and a lot itself. of the folks in Norwood uh, are the elders are still around. So you know, so I got to talk to folks who were, you know they are here. They are 94, 103, all these elders in the community who I got to speak to, and I'm just like, this is like the first of like several stories I just want to write about this whole community that's been here literally like five miles from my house and we never knew and the whole city didn't know and it's only in the last literally the last year or so that all of a sudden the city's woken up like whoa what has been here this whole time that that's really interesting because i read about norwood and something about the way you wrote about it implied to me that it was a real place i i, I never had any doubt that it was a real place so i went to google and i typed away and I couldn't find anything apart from references to a free town and stuff about the 60s when it was kind of incorporated in some way. Or, uh, but there was just no reference to it. And I was like, well, that's strange because I imagine it would be some like really iconic part of the city that being in all the guidebooks. But no. But but no. And so we, we've been encouraging my friend, like, why don't you start publishing your findings before other people come along and start publishing your findings? But. Uh, and, and so she's like, so she's doing the scholarship where she's uh, like, and, and the elders keep everything. So like church bulletins going back decades, family albums going back decades, all sorts of ephemera, um, just going back, you know, almost a, a hundred years. And, and, and this, both Norwood and, and the sister city were founded by the 28th Regiment, which was the colored troops who returned from the Civil War. 
And so you have all the, you know, so we have original uniforms and everything. So now there's this big movement. So like a lot of museums are sending resources to help document this place. But for me, it came down to the magic of this community and what, what, what can I write about it? And one of the things she pointed out was like, there is a vineyard that ran through and that bordered the entire community. Um, and it was this vineyard that provided food for the whole community. And that's what helped make them self-sufficient because they had uh, all the, this huge, massive garden that ringed and protected their city. And then, you know, between that and the magic, I was, look, look here, <laughs> I'm ready. I could see an entire set of novels being written in that world because it's, it's a world unto itself. It's, it's, it's sort of simultaneously fantastical and very, very, very real and gritty, you know? So yeah, I can, I can totally see how the alarm bells went off when you heard about that. But it's, it's a pretty grueling story, even, even though it's seen largely the eyes of a child. Um, if you have any historical knowledge of, you know, the period it takes place and it's a pretty grueling story, almost because of what she's not seeing as much as what she is. Well, part of the, part, part of that is also, you know, it's Indianapolis. And so at, at the time, uh, one in three citizens in Indiana were registered members of the Klan. So this attack from the Night Riders that is the, the, like the climactic moment, is that a real thing that happened? Uh, it's, it's implied and there were, because where Norwood is situated, yeah, there was a sister, there was a town on the other side that, I mean, the attack wasn't as brutal as I, I, <laughs> I do in the story. But also, this is also not too long before, the Klan did a march mm. through Indianapolis and the numbers vary anywhere between 10,000 and 100,000 people marched, the Klan members marched through the city. <laughs> Jesus. Ah, Indianapolis. <laughs> I lived there when I was little, so I, yeah. Right? <laughs> right? <laughs> so, so it all tracks. <laughs> yeah, it does. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Jesus. Ah, Indianapolis. <laughs> I lived there when I was little, so I, yeah. Yeah, it does. <laughs> it, it, it's funny that when, when you said Indianapolis is kind of like American microcosm, I saw Nettie <laughs> nod and give herself a rice smile. Yeah, so yeah, is that... it, it, it really is. I, I, I lived there for a, a brief period of time with my family. And I, my, one of the stories that my dad has was about walking into a Klan rally, you know, and, and Indian, Indianapolis holds a, a, a special place in my heart. And everything you're saying totally totally tracks totally tracks but it's it's a strangely uplifting story because it, it's all about a community coming together to fight with the the weapons that you know the unique weapons they have at their disposal and i then went off and i was reading about you maurice and i, I know that you know you're often talked about in terms of being a, a local community organizer and an, an activist and is that sense of community important to your work would you say oh it's, it's foundational to my work um in fact if you look at any of my stories so you got that the norwood trouble there even i have a middle grade detective novel called unfadeable and it's all about a a, a young lady who's uh, even though she's in middle school what does it look like for her to organize and and, and as a teenager uh, find her voice and and figure out ways to uh, go up against a political a corrupt political system you know or my sci-fi stuff uh, uh, with a sweep of stars. It, what is it? It's a pan-Africanist story. That's well, what does it look like for us to organize and and build community on our terms? Um, so it's all uh, community and relationships is just foundational to 
my, my work, my, my stories, my voice. The only other story of yours I've read so far is Kingmaker, um, which I, I, I liked a great deal. Oh, yeah. I, yeah, that was my, uh, uh, <laughs> I almost call it my King Arthur in the Hood novel. Um, <laughs> but it was it, when I originally wrote that, and that, this, should tell, this, this actually tells you a lot about my horror career at the time, too. I, when I wrote that, to my mind, that was a coming-of-age horror novel. Um, but when they, when the story, when the novel sold, they were just like, oh, this is a great urban fantasy novel. And I'm just like, urban, fa urban fantasy, what are you gonna do about all the zombies I have in there? And they're like, trust me, it'll work. But I'm like, okay. So it, it, was, it was very much, it was a horror novel that they just branded as urban fantasy. Well, well don't worry. I have questions about genre divisions. Trust me. I have, I have questions okay. on that because this, this, I mean, that is a theme that comes up on this show week in, week out. But this, this book, this collection makes that extremely pertinent. Um, but before we move on from from the Norwood Trouble, um, th th there's one line that opened up a, a whole train of thought for me. Uh, you mentioned there are these two pastors, uh, these two religious leaders, um, who have sort of differing opinions on how to deal with the trouble they have. I've written the quote down, but to try and make it clear, this is a conversation between two people. What one person says, witchcraft, is what our oppressors call it to demonize us. We carried our old ways to this new land. And then Rufus, who is kind of the heroic father in the story, says, um, I shouldn't have to tell you that Jesus don't need the company. The implication being that there is a confrontation between African religion and, and Christianity. And, and we've seen that in horror, that confrontation in horror, many, many times, you know, most often in like the bastardization of, Voodoo and things like that, and I was just interested in in what what your perspective is what on on that because it seems like a much more productive, creative thing rather than a horrifying thing in your story. Well, I mean, I, I come back to the whole idea of like we're not a monolith, uh, and that, that crosses even over to religion because uh, you know while I was raised Christian, there's a big part of me that a lot of my Christian journey has been like, all right, so how much of my Christianity has been informed by this oppressive system? that I need to deconstruct and, and re-examine. So I have that conversation going on inside of me. I also have the fact that my mother's family, there's plenty of practicing Obia people in, in, in our family. And so all of that is in conversation with me. And yeah, I, I will, I'll see terms like witchcraft as that isn't, that isn't language we came up with. That's language that was used to, to uh, demonize our natural, our, our, our original practices, our ancient practices. And so I'm very much about just living in tension and having conversation but, you know, this is all stuff that informs me who I am and how I want, want to try and just move through the world. Uh, yeah, you know, I grew up in, um, uh, you know, my, my mother was a pastor. She had her own church. I grew, up, I grew up in sort of a very strict evangelical Christian household. And, um, and you know, uh, like every, a lot of what I do, a lot of what I write, a lot of what I'm interested in is definitely a departure from from that and you know um and i've sort of i spoke i've talked about this before but yeah you know, I, so I i left the church sort of long before i you know started writing seriously but also like you know part of me felt like I, the sort of evangelical christian upbringing and my 
interests mm-hmm. and what I wanted to write, research, work on, they, they, they could not live in the same room. Um, you know, they just could not, they could not, they could not be in the same room. They couldn't live in the same space. Like the, the, um, and, and, you know, and I found the, um, I found Christianity and like sort of the strictures of evangelical, evangelical faith much easier to shrug off because it was, I was, it was always something I, like my inner nature yeah. was fighting yeah. against. Oh yeah. And I've been kicked I out mean, of many a churches for writing the stories that I write. So. <laughs> this is a big subject. So I don't even know if I'm going to say, say I, I will say that, I mean, the reason why I write, um, fantasy because like i mm, i have some issues with like the, the the term fantasy but like i i started writing it because when i started writing i wanted to write about those things um specifically nigerian specifically Igbo, uh spiritual cosmo spiritual practices cosmologies all of that that i was because i grew up hearing about all of these things i I grew up with all of this around me especially when we we visit nigeria we visit a lot when i was little we had these these epic trips and those greatly affected me especially as a nigerian american and my my eye was naturally it just naturally went to those spiritual practices and the cosmologies and a lot of it had to do with because they were forbidden when Mm. when people would bring them up People would be like, we don't talk about that. Those things are evil. You know, the, the role of colonization was suppressing a lot of those things. That made me more curious. And so I got obsessed with those things. And when I finally started writing, because you, you were told not to talk about it. And when I started writing, writing was this freedom where I could talk about it as much as I wanted to without any repercussions. And so when I look at the category of fantasy, which was kind of in a lot of ways imposed on me, because like they would see what I was writing about and be like, oh, this is fantasy because, you know, this is fantasy. We're not familiar with this. So therefore it's fantasy. So basically I write fantasy because of Igbo traditional spiritualities and cosmologies. I mean, that's what it boils. That's what it boils down to for me. And that's how. Yeah. That's how it works. No, well, I've got to ask because they're three very interesting answers. Um, and well, well, we'll go from there, Neddy, because I, 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 I want to talk about this fantasy horror thing. But um, first of all, do you want to introduce your story, Dark Home? Yeah. Okay. How do I explain this thing? <laughs> uh, yes. <laughs> There's a lot in this. Um, Okay, so first of all, when it comes to, I grew up, uh, like, the my reading really started with reading horror. As a teenager, I read a lot of horror, and I loved it. But it also scared the heck out of me. Like, I was scared all the time. I was just terrified of just, and I was naturally already afraid of things. Like, I, it's not, not that I was timid or anything like that, but I just, the, the dark, I've always been afraid of the dark. Um, so, so that was already my foundation. So when I was asked to write this, I, I kind of leaned into things that scared me. Like that's one of the things I started thinking about. I'm like, oh, and I'm like, oh, I have plenty of things that scare me. I'm scared all the time. So this should be, this should not be difficult. So basically Dark Home is about, um, it's about a Nigerian American woman who she lives in Phoenix, Arizona, which is where I live. And, um, it starts off at the funeral of her father. Her father was a big man, you know, and and so when she's there, she does something stupid. She does something out of out of feeling, out of passion. She takes something that she's not supposed to take. And in taking it, it's like um, it's a very strong reflection of her Nigerian Americanness because she doesn't know that she's not supposed to do that. And she does it out of grief. And so that sets the whole story um, 
into motion and she returns to the she returns to the United States and a whole bunch of stuff happens. And one thing about her is that she also loves technology. So she lives in a smart home where she has all of these devices, just devices. She's got like a, she's got the ring and then she's got a little house robot and then she, everything is connected in her home. It's like a feeling of control. And so like her phone, she can control her, her home with her phone. A lot of this is autobiographical because I love this stuff. <laughs> Even stuff I don't need. I just love these things. I love the idea of controlling every aspect of my home, just at my, <laughs> at my hands. I love it. It's like your home is just a creature and you're just, yeah, it's alive. So I was just kind of drawing off of that. So when I was writing the story, there was also something that happened just be actually just before I started writing the story and I knew I'm like, oh, this has got to go right in the story. I have, you know, I have the ring doorbell. It records, it gives you, um, it shows you the front of your house and then it gives you all these warnings of someone that there's motion, it's motion detector, sound, all of that. And so at about, so, so with my ring, with my ring um, at around a, Three or four a.m. I'm just I'm I'm sleeping and I hear motion detected at the front door, like it announces it in this loud voice, and that's not what you want to hear at three or four a.m. You don't want to hear anything like that. I mean, a few times it's been a moth or something, but fine. And so I'm like, oh my god! And I immediately look to see what's what's what could possibly be in front of my standing in front of my house at three or four a.m. And there was a storm that was moving by. And so when I looked at the picture, I see lightning in the background and then there's wind and there's this palm tree that's like a little bit to the left. And so the, the wind was moving the palm tree around and it looked exactly like, um, like a kaiju kind of, kind of creature that's, that's walking around slowly. And with my three or 4 a.m. sleep addled brain to look at this, the terror that I filled with was so intense. It was so intense. And so all of that just went right into the story. So like the story is very much, you know, it, it's about, um, it, it, it looked like a masquerade. That was, that's the main thing. It looked like a masquerade. A masquerade, if you don't know, it's like, a, um, it's the manifestation of the dead or the ancestors. And the, it, you just, just Google masquerades. I cannot even explain, but it looked like a masquerade. And so like um, immediately I knew that was going straight into my story. I have Googled the masquerade because I was so struck by this image at the heart of your yes. story, this, this entity, the, the Ajofia that you write about, which I quite honestly never seen anything like it. And I mean, could you, t without giving too many spoilers, could you talk about it a little bit just to... Yeah. Um, Ajofia is, there, there are many different types of masquerades. There are um, Igbo masquerades, Yoruba masquerade, like Africa has, it's basically full of masquerades, so many different types. And each, uh, each ethnic group has many different types and each locate people's um, towns, they have different ones as well. Ajofia is my favorite masquerade. Ajofia is terrifying. Ajofia comes out during funerals and, and weddings and celebrations. You are privileged and some, some would say the exact opposite of privilege, cursed if you see if you see Ajofia. Ajofia is like uh, very, very tall, very big, um, black, uh, smoke coming out of the head, dead animals on it. it, it Ajofia is very shaggy. Yeah. 
Yeah, shaggy and just terrifying. And you see it. And for me, the thing is, I'm supposed to be terrified of a Jofia, especially being female. But I, I, I see it, and I'm just like, oh my god, it's so, it's so awesome, it's so cool. But, but yeah, um, I've written about a Jofia many times. A Jofia has shown up in so many of my stories because, and and the name a Jofia also means evil forest. Even though there's some dispute behind that naming, there might be a little bit of the thing going on there where it's like indigenous things, indigenous practices being deemed as evil. There's there's some question about the, the, the definition and where that name came from. The way the story ends seems to hinge on Nicolo's kind of casting off her Igbo heritage um, because she fully embraces this technology that she loves, you know, that she has safeguarded her life with, that kind of marks her American life. And that struck me as a an unexpected ending. Well, I mean, it's all about how you read it. Because, you know, when I wrote it, that's not what it means. You know, I, I typically don't write characters who uh, shrug off their culture. That's just not my thing. That's what I thought. But, yeah, it's it's fear. Um, it's the, the, yeah, we're talking about the ending. <laughs> I probably, probably shouldn't talk about the ending. There's a, there's the ending, there's a specific something about the ending. And I don't want to give it to, I don't want to give it away because it, it, if I mentioned it to you, you'd be like, oh, you would know. But I don't want to give the ending away. Consider it edited. Cool. No, I, I clearly missed, the, <laughs> I clearly missed the, the nuance of that. You'd be amazed how much I missed because I have to read books <laughs> so fast for this show. Basically what happens is I read a book come on the show, talk to the author, and they tell me what I've got wrong about, about reading the book over the last four days. <laughs> no, it's fine. story is very much centres on a kind of historical trauma. Neddy's story centres on a kind of identity conflict. Um, Leslie, your story is a full-on near-future science fiction. Um and it does show, those three things show the breadth of this collection. But can you tell us a little bit about Invasion of the Baby Snatchers? It's a great title, by the way. <laughs> Thank you. So, um, all right. So, you know, I got, you know, so I, I, you know, got the email asking, you know, to write a piece of horror. And the funny thing is that yes. I had, I'd written horror before, but I had written horror by mistake. <laughs> We've all done it. <laughs> I, <laughs> like I had not set out to write horror, but I, you know, I, I was writing about motherhood and end up turning into a work of a piece of horror. And so, um, and so, I was just like, you know, I was like, okay, I definitely want to do this, but I was like, I felt like, okay, like I, I'm scared. I, I'm, ter- I'm scared of everything. I, um, I'm scared of the dark. I'm scared <laughs> of noises. I'm scared. So, like, um, I. Do not go out of my way to either read or watch things that terrify me. I it's like, you know, like I sort of grew up with night terrors like every night for like a decade when I was young, when I was a kid. And so I just, I just tend to avoid things that scare me because I'm just like, I just I do not want that occurrence of that. And so when I, you know, so when I sort of got this, you know, assignment, right, he's like, okay, Leslie, you know, if you're going to write this, then like you need to familiarize yourself with the 
horror canon, essentially. And I read pretty fast. I read five to eight books a week. And so I just was set an assignment for myself where, okay, for three months, all (laughs) I was going to read was horror. Horror for three months, just like essentially like catching up, right? And so... So it was very much like a fever dream of, of, you know, three, three and a half months. Also ended up with horror being like now one of my favorite genres because, you know, like with any sort of genre that you do not engage with, like you have an idea of what it is. And then when you actually read like the breadth of what it offers, it's like, oh, like this is like, mm-hmm. um, I like my, my, um, my, like the scope of my imagination for what horror could be was yeah, like was was limited from not engaging you know engaging with the genre and so i i read so much horror so much different kinds of horror and it was um it was both overwhelming and liberating because i realized okay i don't have to like what i imagined like my version of horror to be did not like, I, didn't, I didn't have to stick to that like there was so much ground that i could cover and um and you know it was those a um uh, a book i read in particular which i will recommend at the end of the podcast that um that was was very much a body horror and i was like okay this this is something that is speaking to me quite a bit right <laughs> and it was also like very wry and also funny in area places and i was like oh i'm hilarious i can do this and so in the midst of sort of this you know sort of you know education in horror and i i, I was working on a, a, a horror piece that was a story that i had sort of was existed in some skeletal form in like, you know, my, my writing folder. Um, and, you know, and I was like, okay, you know, and I was like, oh, it's about a ghost. So maybe this is a horror. And, you know, I, it, the story kept resisting being horror. Cause like, you know, it was like, I'm not a scary, it wasn't a scary ghost. It was just like, you know, it was just a ghost. And so, and so, um, and so, you know, once I was like, okay, like, sort of encountered this particular work and just sort of like, you know, sort of blew my mind, just really loved it. Um, loved, actually, I'm going to recommend two books, loved the humor of the, you know, these two books. And I was like, okay, well, I am, so like, okay, I'm going to write a body horror and I, um, I, I'm going to, I want it to be funny as well as disturbing. Right. And so, um, and so that was the genesis of, you know, um, Invasion of the Baby Snatchers, which, um, had also existed in some form in my folder, but was not a horror story. It was, I had like a, maybe like a paragraph and it was very much a sort of military something story. And so this, like, but this, this is a much better version than what I was, what I imagined it to be. And so I, and so like that, that sort of became the horror story. And so, yeah, so uh, for you know, readers who have not read it yet, or sorry, listeners have not read it yet. Um, it is a, it sort of, takes place yet in the sort of near future world and um, humanity is being invaded, but we are being invaded via pregnancies. So the aliens are sort of infiltrating um, wombs and, um, and sort of entering the human population that way or attempting to. Yeah. yeah. It's got a fantastic last line that if you want to think about it in the body horror terms is really quite chilling. Yeah. I, um, I see where that all comes in. Um, it's cool to know that, that this story is kind of like a distillation of three months hardcore horror reading, though. That's that's a great origin story. Um, well, I, I don't want to give too many details. This one kind of hinges on all kinds of secrets, um, but it it does. It's a story that that seems to live at the kind of nexus of a lot of really severe anxieties at the minute, like quite particularly American anxieties. You know, let's face it, around bodily autonomy around policing 
and, and things like that, you know. And it, I did find it really interesting that you make your protagonist in this story sort of part of the authority rather than someone... Because there is somebody in this story who's, who's kind of on the run and their own story is a horror story reading between the lines. And, you know, a number of authors in this collection have done that. They've, they've written from the position of authority. Do you have any insight into why you've done that? So, um, yes. And so it's less authority, more that, okay, so this this conceit of the alien invasion via pregnancy, the window into this world is like, it has to be a character who is close enough to it to interact with, um, you know, like, I, I love, I love bureaucracy. Like I love how, like what bureaucracy looks like on the page and the idea of like, okay, if there was an alien invasion happening via pregnancy, like, oh yeah, we would build protection or the networks we build to, to stop it, like would have its own rules, it'd have its own, um, sort of like, you know, like, you know, bureaucratic mechanisms. And so if I make my character one of those sort of, you know, bureaucrats or agents or whatever, then I get to be able to interact with both the people on the outside and on the inside of the sort of like the, you know, and so, um, and so like that, that, that was very intentional. That was a very sort of intentional um, uh, choice to sort of, uh, you know, have the story told from the perspective of a character who sees with and engages with enough of both the outside world and when I say outside it's like outside of the agency right like horror that's happening and internally sort of got to see sort of both worlds or both sides of things but having her be someone who was uh, specifically working for the agency that's sort of trying to stop this invasion um it just allowed me to um like to do a lot of things that i enjoy right um i I got to sort of build this sort of world in you know this the structure of this agency and what it looks like internally just things that like i find interesting um and so it just allowed me to go so many uh, so many places that say if i was from the perspective of like you know one of the impregnated women like there's only so much that i can do in that point of view it kind of makes it as much of a science fiction story as a horror story as well because you do have that insight into the infrastructure and all of the the machinations behind the scene and it, it yeah it, it it makes it a really nice sci-fi horror hybrid and and that is the last thing i'm going to ask you about i've been promising it all episode about this stuff about <laughs> genre. Um, can't remember the last time I've read a book which has really made me think about how complicated genre dynamics are. Often how, how pointless they are as well, but how how complicated they are. Um, because right, I was speaking unrelated to this. I, I was speaking to a, a editor at a British publishing house this week, and I, amongst many things, talk about the state of horror in the nation. Um, I asked him about the relative scarcity of of black British horror authors, because I I think there is um, a scarcity. And his explanation of sorts was that, you know, writers of colour are more commonly working in fantasy and in science fiction. Now, I don't know enough to say anything about that, but it it struck me as as an interesting thing to say. So... What are your opinions on, in your own experience, on the on the interrelatedness of of, of horror and sci fi and fantasy and this this catch all term that is thrown around of Afrofuturism that that seems to be 
used, I think, a little bit perhaps too much um, or too widely. What, what, what are your thoughts on how these genres interconnect? Neddy, you're wincing, so we'll come to you first. Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah. Um. <laughs> oh, go ahead. <laughs> I'm still thinking about what you were saying initially, where you was the the dearth of um, Black British horror writers, and the reason being that that black writers black british writers are mainly writing fantasy and science fiction. I'm like what no there that's that's not no that no like that that's that's the kind of um excuse that was given back in the day when they were like uh how come black people don't write science fiction it's, oh it's because they're doing something out like we don't exist of course they exist you know um that's not, I don't know what the reason like that they're not publishing and I don't know the I don't know the, the statistics I don't know about self publishing stuff that's happening underground all that but typically I don't think it's good to assume it's because they don't exist or they're not writing it they're writing it okay so 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 I just that that was what was sticking in my brain um in terms of um, categories I've, I've talked a lot about categories in the last last five or six years now um and like for me yeah afrofuturism is a term that's thrown around willy-nilly and it needs to be kind of kind of roped in i mean I, I will say it needs to be roped in because it's it's basically thrown at anyone who's writing any black writer who is writing something weird is afrofuturism and i don't think uh i think that uh one, I don't think that black writers should be under a whole umbrella. We don't fit under a whole umbrella category, other than we're writers who are black and we're we're writing from our experiences. If that's a category, which it's not, but if that's a category, fine, that umbrella can work. But like Afrofuturism does not embody everything. And so what I've said for a long time is um, for years now, like I don't, I don't uh, call my work, my, my, my work is not Afrofuturist. My work is African futurist. And I've had the whole definition of, um, of that. And I don't want to go into like the specifics of that. But if you're, if you're interested, just Google African futurism and Nettie and my blog post specifically, not the interpretations of my blog posts, but my blog post defining the term is out there for you to read um, and, and, and the reason why I felt I needed to, to define the term is in the, in the blog post as well. And really what I will say is that I think it's really important that, and, and Maurice has said this multiple times that black writing is not a monolith. That's the crux of it. Like, and I think that needs to be understood because I think that, that the phenomena and what's been happening with Afrofuturism and the, the way the term is thrown around at everything is is kind of reflecting this idea that we are all that we are a monolith, and that is not true. So I think that's really important. That's a conversation that needs to be understood, and our work needs to be read that way. Because when you when you view a whole peoples as a monolith, you view all of their stories, all of their experiences, all of their ideas through a lens that strains them to all be the same. And so, therefore, you're missing everything, basically. So, yeah, I'll get off my soapbox now. <laughs> no, no. I had noticed the difference between Afro and African futurism. 
um, and was going to ask you about it. So I'm glad you've you brought it up because I I wasn't aware that I knew that term was particularly something that was that was often mentioned in relation to you. I didn't realize that you had gone to bat for making that the the term you wanted to apply to your own work. So I'll, I'll find the blog and I'll put it in the show notes. Yeah, it's easy to find. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a great answer. I don't know whether Maurice, Leslie, you want to add to that? Oh, yeah. Well, what, to what I was thinking about, so that, that response about, well, uh, Black folks aren't writing in that genre was applied to us uh, at the beginning of my career. They were just like, well, Black people don't write horror. And I'm just now, and I remember, distinctly remember, because I went to my first horror convention in 2002. And there, I mean, don't get me wrong, I could count the number of us at that convention on one hand. But that wasn't because we weren't writing it. I mean, there, there at some point you have to examine, oh, wait, what are the gatekeepers? <laughs> uh, how are they stopping folks from coming in and being published? Because that was a very real thing. Because uh, by the time Brandon and I think uh, Dark Dreams, I think that anthology came out, in, I want to say 2008, the first one of that. Because again, Black people apparently weren't writing horror, yet he had no problem doing a call for, for Black horror writers and having enough to fill three volumes worth of books because we were out there it's just if we aren't being platformed or if we're being get gate kept out the industry that is not us but we're going to still write our stories <laughs> we're going to find our way to the marketplace one way or the other so so that that's one thing i look at and then as far as a genre definition man i i, I just i try to duck genre def <laughs> categories uh, categorizing conversations left and right because i mean we even had it with uh, my discussion of kingmaker kingmaker it, i in my mind was a horror novel but I mean, I pitched it as The Wire meets Excalibur because I also love crime novels. And I threw that in there too. So it's a crime novel, a horror novel. And what does it get published as? An urban fantasy. So, uh, you know, so the, the categorizations <laughs> are, I'm, I'm just going to write what I write and I, I let other folks worry about where they want to stick it. Um, I will echo that as well. Um, I, you know, do not have, so like I, I you know, my, my work, I, I write, work mostly in short stories, right? And um, at least um, so far, you know, TBD, watch this space. So I think that, um, and so like, I think I, I deal with less of that sort of genre categorization right now, which will likely change um, as, um, as um, uh, more books come out. But to some extent, I don't really care in the sense that, um, like, that, I feel like that's none of my business. Like, um, you know, like, in the way that people will, you know, sort of write about your work. If they people study your work or write about your work and they have their own opinions, they have their own interpretations. And um, like, I can't argue with every single one of them, right? What I'm really interested in, in is my creative growth, where I, like the different things that I want to do. Um, and so I, I do not, like I'm currently like sort of not, thinking or preoccupied with like, you know, well, which genre is this? Where do I fit in? Um, you know, uh, I feel like as more of my work comes out um, and if I sort of start feeling wildly miscategorized, then, you know, I might have um, some things to say, but right now it just feels like, you know, um, I'm just sort of doing my thing and I, I, you know, there's only so much attention I can pay to like what people are saying about it. And, um, and I, I don't, I don't tend to engage with, sort of like reviews or evaluations of my work. And so it's just not something that I uh, think about, but I do want to talk about this, you know, the comment that the editor made about, um, you know, as, as we're all piling on this, you know, poor Adria. You know, I just, I do want to say that I felt, you know, 
Um, I wanted to actually maybe connect that to uh, part of the conversation we were having earlier about sort of, you know, like what is Black horror, right? And so I wonder, this um, editor says, oh, like, you know, no, like, no one's really writing that um, here. And I'm wondering, well, what is it that he thinks Black British horror is? And is his opinion on whether it is or is not been written being defined by the constraints of like how he thinks like whatever his de- definition of black British horror is like, like if you like if you only think of black horror as being sort of like mm. this very specifically racialized you know sort of you know, you know built on like a very specific narrative then will you would you be able to recognize another something that's not that that is horror as horror if you have this very sort of you know, stringent definition of what black horror is. No, I completely agree. And just to clarify, like, uh, we, you know, my question was entirely about, like you said, Maurice, what is making its way to market? What is being published? You know, but why are we not seeing these books on, on book listings and bookshelves, you know, which is um, basically a, a different conversation. Um, but no, I'll take, I'll take your point entirely. Well, can I... Can I add one more thing about like why why I care? Because I typically don't like I don't like labels. I don't and I I when I write I don't know what I'm writing. I don't I don't even outline when I'm writing. Um, but here's why I care, because there there are certain labels that can be okay. I'll be specific about like my own work. The reason why I started caring was that I'm writing these things where I'm 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 um, writing about Nigerian culture, you know, I'm writing about these these things, especially ma- masquerades, and because it's slapped in with the label of let's say fantasy, therefore they don't understand that I'm writing about things that are real. Like people thought that I was making up masquerades. They thought that I that I you know um, people thought I was making up Mammy Wat uh, because of the um, cultural the because of the, the cultural ignorance about the culture that I'm writing about, because people don't know those cultures, because it's foreign to them, they assume it's fantasy. And it's by assuming it's fantasy, they think I'm just making it up. And I, that's very problematic. There, and, and so it keeps coming back to, because literally because of the label and the definitions of the label, what I'm writing is not understood. And that's why those categories mm-hmm. matter to me. I understand the importance of these these labels and the naming the the issue of naming something when you name something people for some reason respond with it exists now whereas if you didn't name it before it didn't exist so like it's not something that I want to I want to harp on but I it's not even about the the labeling it's about wanting to be understood as a as what you know as a writer wanting what I'm writing about especially the cultural stuff to be understood as a, for me, as a Nigerian American writer who is being published in predominantly North America. Yeah, that's, that's okay. That's really funny that um, the, uh, I have the opposite problem where I will make something up out of whole cloth and people will assume that it is just like a, like a cultural derivative of something that already exists. And so it's like, and, like, and so like that, that is something that I, that is something that I think fits into this idea of mm-hmm. um, work by writers of color being assumed to be almost like educational material, right? That, yeah, that is something that like 
I don't care for, <laughs> you know, quite a bit. And something like, that I have sort of, you know, talked about um, at different interviews. Mm. But, th- you know, so like, I don't know, I find it interesting mm-hmm. that we both have the opposite problem, but the mm. sort of like same sentiment almost, where it's like, don't, don't, don't create a, like, don't assume don't what assume. this is. Don't assume what this don't is. Don't assume. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I'm so glad about this conversation. And when I was saying I don't care, what, I'm, what I mean is in relation to this book, because this book is horror, um, I'm saying that within these pages, I, I don't really care whether this story is nominally sci-fi or this story is nominally fantasy or whatever, because all it does is show how versatile a horror story can be, you know, and it really is just a real melting, the entire spectrum of, of speculative fiction, but with the one thing connecting it all is fear, I suppose. But let, let's finish with, you know, celebrations of books we do love, um, whether they're horror or otherwise. Can Starting with you, Nettie, can you recommend a book for my listeners and tell us why we should read this one? Oh, boy. <laughs> um, let's see. Um, does it have to be horror or can it be? Not at all. Not at all. Anything you want. Okay. I'm um, like trying to see what have I written. Uh, how, high we, how high we go in the dark. That's what I, I recently read. I recently read that. And um, it's about <laughs> it's about an Arctic plague that is excavated and then disseminates humanity. <laughs> and um, I guess, you know, my story in, in Out There Screaming is very much about death. This was very much about death. This, bo- this book is, uh, it, it, it's, it's from mul- multiple points of views at multiple points in time during the plague. Um, it's not a long book, but it is very dark. It's probably the darkest book that I've read in a in a long time but still oddly like it revels in the darkness and you know I guess it's it's yeah it's definitely um in in the title of the book how high we go in the dark another book that I that I read recently um was uh Demon Copperhead Demon Copperhead by um uh Barbara Kingsley yeah yeah Love that I, I that and what what I loved most about it was the strength of the voice. I'm big on voice. I'm big on on stories that are that are told by a powerful, um, complex, uh, just in, intriguing voice that draws you, but also into the 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 the, the uh, main character's culture as well. Um, but yeah, those are my two. Those are just right off the top of my head. The the how high we go in the dark is written by is it. Sequoia Nagamatsu. Uh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not sure how to pronounce it, <laughs> but yes. I have a copy of both of those. Okay. Books cool. And I, I'm excited to read them because the, the 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 Demon Cophead is the retelling of is it Dickens' David Copperfield in Appalachia? Yeah, but you know, I didn't read it that way. I read it as its own as its own narrative, as its own voice. So okay. so yeah. I mean, I, you can read it that way, or you could just read it as as the book it is. Okay. Okay. Cool. Great. Two great recommendations. Uh, Maurice, over to you. Let's see. I just, I just read. Uh, well, I, I just finished reading uh, Victor Laval's The Changeling uh, in preparation for you know sitting down and watching the TV show. Yeah. Uh, so you know, I like you know, I love it when I have to do my homework. You know, getting ready to watch TV. 
Um, and I, I, I'm a big fan of Victor's work, so uh, I'm always looking forward to, to seeing what he does with things. Yes. And the other book was uh, No Gods, No Monsters by uh, uh, Cadwell <laughs> Turnbull. Um, uh, and, and the big thing about both those, uh, what, what draws me into works is, uh, you know, it's, it's always that commentary on, on, on current situations. You know, I, lo- I love uh, commentary and, and, you know, wrapping, you know, these tales of uh, horror or fantasy, you know, but having like real world commentary go sprinkled all through it. And uh, it, like Cadwell's book begins with a, a police shooting and then goes into all sorts of unexpected uh territory with such beautiful prose that i was just like i i was just sucked in immediately with, with, with his work yeah oh, amazing I, I would check it out for sure um victor came on the show victor laval came on the show to talk about lone women still one of my favorite episodes ever yeah right and that's that's the book i'm I, I was, that's what i'm building up to yeah. is like i have it over here my my stack ready to, to read yeah, so a, i'm ready it was a, one of my favorite conversations of the year um mm. i i did i loved the Love first half of that book yeah particularly yeah it sets it sets up this mystery that's like a twilight zone style mystery and then goes in some crazy places <laughs> and, and what about you leslie what you what, what what from your year of reading horror would you like to recommend <laughs> yes <laughs> all right so i will read i will recommend the two of the um the uh books that really sort of resonated with me and like you can totally see sort of how they sort of exist in like the literary ancestry of the story that i ended up writing um one of them is the nesting by cj cook and that book is um you know this is like sort of an irish poet turned mystery writer and this book was a work so this book is about a it's about a haunting um, there are so many disturbing things that happen in this book, um, you know, up to including like an attempted suicide, um, which is which is how the story starts off with like a botched attempted suicide, and um, it is the funniest, one of the funniest. But I was laughing out loud in this book that just had all these really either horrible or t- and or terrifying things that we have because it is it is um, a work of horror and um when i encountered that book i was like oh i don't think i realized you could do that you know and so that was just really lovely and i've actually sort of went on to read um while i could get my hands on um um for um of of her work and just sort of um enjoyed it and I will not, I will, you know, I'll stop, I'll stop talking there. Um, the other book that I really want to recommend is, um, Leech by Hiron Ennis. And I, I am so grateful that I started reading horror just so that I could get to that book, which is my favorite book that I read last year. And, um, and so, you know, so sort of, um, uh, uh, when I sort of try to describe it to people, like the back cover, the, the sort of the back, the flat cover copy does not really I was like read I read the book before I read the flap company and I was like wait what like it didn't feel like it was the same book but mm-hmm. how I describe the book to people is that it takes place in maybe like a future or like a version of you know earth where um all doctors are sort of controlled by one entity so like there's this sort of like borg like entity that is just sort of um, all every sort of medical practitioner of the world over is controlled by this entity and we start um and like the story starts sort of like from you know, this entity's perspective. And there is a conceit that that happens with that, that that point of view that the writer does that is so like 
just so masterful and just so well done. Um, and just sort of like, and the effect of it is just, you know, magnificent that the, the moment I finished reading the book, I just went back to like those chapters just to like read that again. This is really, really well done. I love that book. I've read Leech. I liked it a lot. I haven't read The Nesting, but I've just Googled it and it sounds like my exact kind of winter read. So I may have to check that one out. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, I mean, I always put these books in the show notes um, either on the podcast thing itself on your device or, or in, on the website. So if people want to check those out, they can. Um, but listen, you've been incredibly gracious with your time on what's probably a busy day for you. So I'm going to let you go. But thank you so much for your stories and thank you for your time. And all three of you, thank you for talking scared. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for having us. Mm. I'm far from sure what I think about how I handled that episode, if I'm honest. I think some of my questions may have elicited some eye rolls from the guest. Internal eye rolls, for sure, because they were far too generous to really put me in my place. But I do think maybe I didn't make some of my points as clearly and precisely as I would have liked. It's a complex one when discussing non-white horror. Because quite rightly and quite obviously, there is no singular black experience or storytelling expectation. No monolith, as Maurice so rightly puts it. And this anthology demonstrates that. Honestly, like, there's so much variety of form and voice and subject in Out There Screaming, as I think we stressed. But nonetheless, the entire project is founded on this idea of presenting black horror as something specific and collective. So, for the interviewer, like me, coming to the topic, it's difficult not to ask about that connective tissue that links these different stories. Yet I can see how that is itself possibly inherently reductive. And you can hear now I'm tying myself in knots just talking about it with you. And as Neddy put it, it's complicated. And I only hope that I didn't seem to suggest it was anything but complicated. Um, yeah, it, 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 look, I had an email conversation with Jordan Peele about the anthology and I asked him some of these questions about what he wanted from the project and what he thinks it shows the world about the state of black horror fiction and he responded with some quite interesting quotes and I'll, I'll mention them here this is what he said Jordan said I wanted a bunch of crazy modern horror short stories unlike a film aren't constrained by budget scope or concept he said these are some of the very top black authors in fiction and i i hope that when prompted to create a personalized nightmare they would explore monsters in these tales that might be representative of some previously unnamed truths so what you get is stories that feel like they couldn't or wouldn't have been told just a few years ago and he elaborated on the issue of trauma as a focus saying i think the responsibility for an artist is to try to add something to the conversation that wasn't there before before Get Out came out, at every stage of writing, I had an overhanging fear of exactly what you are saying. I thought, I know this works for me, but it's quite possible that the movie would be accused of being reductively focused on trauma. Like, what if it was too triggering? Even that very notion that I couldn't make this film or tell this story was a confinement, and breaking out of that confinement became the point. And Jordan closed with this simple sentence, but I think it speaks the most about the anthology, he says, 
What I love most is that these stories have so many different worlds and monsters. So, generous comments from Jordan. And I do think that Nettie, Leslie and Maurice's stories form a great cross-section of what's on, on offer here. The horror of historical violence, of identity crisis, the sheer nightmare of Leslie's science fiction. But add to that a story by Tanana Reeve Du that I think feels like an unearthed piece of recent folklore. There's a brilliantly chilling apocalypse from L.D. Lewis and a, a monster hunting story by Rebecca Roanos that must give birth to a huge series of novels, surely. You mix all of that, and this book has got enough to restore any flagging faith in the range and reach of the speculative macabre. I haven't mentioned Cadwell Turnbull. Maurice recommended Cadwell's novel No Gods, No Monsters, and I want to read it now because of that recommendation and because of his story in this anthology. It's called Wandering Devil, and it reads like a contemporary blues song, a devil at the crossroads sort of thing with a really modern spin, and I'd love to get Cadwell on the show. Also, that point I made about the relative lack of black British horror authors, I'm very interested in wider knowledge on that. Am I missing key names? I assume I probably am. Who should I be reading? I had Chickadilly Emeliamado on the show. I know that Tade Thompson has written horror. My friend, C.C. Adams. But I'd love to know more about the black British horror scene. Get in touch about that or anything else you want to talk about by emailing me at talkingscaredpod at gmail.com or find me on social media at talkscaredpod. Remember, the Patreon is there if you want more and you want to support the show. And as it's my birthday, drop a review somewhere. It's the best gift a boy can get. And I know I said the same thing last week, but I got my release dates mixed up. So this really is the birthday episode. I won't keep saying that every week. <laughs> um, I'm being whisked away by my wife for a few days, but the show never, ever stops. So I'll be back next week with an absolutely thumping episode featuring both Josh Malaman and Ronald Malfi talking about the art of the novella and their recent collections of longer stories. It's a very rock and roll hour of conversation. Until then, consider your words carefully, invite fresh perspectives, and have a glass of water before going to bed drunk. Read good books, and remember, it's good to be scared. <laughs>